Hello everyone, my name is Spencer, and did you know that the first reference to a rotor system was credited to none other than Leonardo da Vinci with his blueprint of the aerial screw in 1480? Hello everyone, and thank you Spencer for giving us all a fun fact that we're going to unpack here shortly in this week's episode. He really has a voice for radio, doesn't he? Happy Monday, y'all, and welcome back to Keeping Up With Kennedy. week, we're going to be unpacking the inner workings of helicopters, tornadoes, butterflies, and thermodynamics to show how mankind has created controlled chaos via the rotor system, and then how Mother Nature creates controlled chaos through the elements in tornadoes, through the metamorphosis of the butterfly, as well as through spontaneous thermodynamic reactions within complex systems. So sit back, relax, crack your favorite beverage, and get ready to learn this week. First up, is helicopters. According to an article from NASA, a helicopter is defined as a type of aircraft that uses rotating or spinning wings called blades to fly. Unlike an airplane or glider, a helicopter has wings that move. Unlike a balloon, a helicopter is heavier than air and uses an engine to fly. A helicopter's rotating blades, or rotor system, allow it to do things that an airplane cannot. Now, in reference to our friend Spencer's fun fact, a full-scale variant of the complete motor system that would become the basis of helicopter operations was not constructed during Leonardo da Vinci's lifetime. However, without da Vinci's design of the aerial screw in 1480, who knows how long it would have taken the next guy to figure that out down the line in history. The fact that helicopters operate by just having a bunch of straight-up blades spinning as fast as they can through the air makes helicopter travel so much more bad than any private jet in my eyes. But it also terrifies me. Like, have you seen how unstable those things look in the sky? I swear every time I see a helicopter hovering over something or flying through the air, it looks like it could fall down and crash at any second. Now, in terms of actual statistics and hard data on how many helicopters are actually crashing each year, the internet presents a lot of different numbers and a lot of seemingly biased articles. One of the better articles I found stated that according to the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team, the 2018 fatal incident rate for all helicopters in the U.S. was 0.72 per 100,000 flight hours, while the same rate for general aviation's smaller private planes was much higher at 1.0. 029 accidents per 100,000 hours. So at least in 2018, it seemed to be safer to fly through the air with spinning ninja blades than it was with little baby wings. This article also references sightseeing helicopter tours. According to the Hawaiian travel site Beat of Hawaii, there have been just 20 fatal helicopter accidents over the past 40 years in all of the Hawaiian islands, keeping in mind that helicopter tours on just the island of Kauai alone can average 100 or more per day. So you have to take this data with a grain of salt, though, because any Hawaiian travel site is going to present you with the information you want to hear so that it can make money on tourism and get you to book that scenic helicopter trip despite your concerns for your safety. And so I'm not saying helicopters are unsafe. I'm just saying that from my personal perspective, they seem a bit chaotic. I'll link an even nerdier article about helicopter crash statistics that you can read on your own if you're interested. The NASA article also describes the principles of lift and flight. In order to fly, an object must have a force moving it upward, something we define as lift. Usually the lift force is created with the object's wings 
via the Bernoulli principle that inversely relates the speed of air to its pressure. In layman's terms, as speed goes up, the pressure goes down, and vice versa. Now, an airplane's wings are shaped in a characteristic airfoil shape, meaning that they are curved on top and flat on the bottom. This causes the air to flow faster over the top of them than it can underneath the wings due to a lot of physics that will probably bore you all. As a result of this shape of the wings, there is less air pressure over the top of the wing than there is on the bottom. And so building off one step further from the Bernoulli principle, the faster the plane goes to take off, the further the pressure is then decreased on top of the wing due to its shape and this inverse relationship, and therefore the greater the suction force created around the wing that literally makes it move upwards. Bam! Planes explained in 60 seconds. You're welcome. Now moving back to helicopters, the spinning blades of the rotor system are actually wings and can create the lift force as well. The helicopter works by moving air over its rotor by spinning its blades. This rotor system allows helicopters to do things that standard airplanes cannot. If you haven't already noticed, helicopters can just take their time lifting off the ground while you get all situated with your cute headset and your snacks and start taking your Instagram stories. It's not very rushed, and you might not even notice any big disruption in your day caused by liftoff in a helicopter. Takeoff in a plane, however, requires going really fast to compensate for Bernoulli's principle and consequently sending you backwards in your seat with that purse you took so much care to fit under the seat in front of you, slowly sliding back to your feet. Helicopters can also move straight upwards and straight downwards, taking off and landing without the need for a runway. Helicopters can also fly backwards and sideways and hover at one spot in the air without moving, just lurking there in the air, watching something like the news people do, fighting fires, or even picking up an injured or sick person who is stuck somewhere with no runway in sight and then dropping them off on the roof of the hospital. Apparently NASA has even been studying how helicopters could be flown to Mars. Imagine you just hop in a helicopter and you get catapulted out of the atmosphere into space and then you're just cruising with your joystick in zero gravity on your way to another planet. The fact that this could actually be feasible by the end of our lifetimes is just mad as a hatter to me. Helicopters kind of seem like undercover ninjas of the sky that are actually hidden in plain sight. What do y'all think? All personnel report to the nearest tornado shelter. Now let's switch gears to seeing how tornadoes work. According to an article from National Geographic, tornadoes are vertical funnels of rapidly spinning air. Kind of like Mother Nature's version of a helicopter, if you ask me. Now, Mother Nature wasn't blessed with our man-made blades, though, so she just whips up her God-given air and elements together to cause utter anarchy. Tornadoes form when warm, humid air collides with cold, dry air. As the warmer air goes up through the colder air, an updraft is created that will then begin to rotate if the conditions are right and the winds vary sharply in speed or direction, or for the perfect storm, in both speed and direction. Tornadoes can occur anywhere throughout the world, but the United States is historically a major hotspot with about 1,000 tornadoes being formed each year. 
I was actually in the eye of the storm in the path of an active tornado at work here in Atlanta just a few weeks ago, and it was crazy. We were all watching the news, and then suddenly we were actually physically located within the square box outlined by the weather guy saying, there is an active tornado in this area. If you are here, you need to take shelter now. You have six minutes, don't worry. Grab your pets, get inside. So we got a call from management pretty soon after that to take all of our patients into the inner hallways of the building and we sheltered there for a while until the tornado had passed. It was actually a very serious situation, but I had never been in a tornado before. So I made an Instagram reel about my experience. In a perfectly timed video, I even got the weatherman glitching out on TV before our signal was lost and we all had to move to the inside of the building. So if you wanna go check that out, I'll link it in the sources for this episode. Anyways, so National Geographic further defines a tornado as a violently rotating column of air that extends from a thunderstorm down to the ground. So what I get from that is that Mother Nature gets so angry up there stuck in the clouds that she actually reigns in her powers to show us humans who's boss by sending down a funnel from the clouds called a tornado to actually slap us with her force to show us who's boss and to teach us all a lesson. And that lesson being that nature is powerful and do not mess with it. Karma will come to get you. Thankfully, I didn't have to learn this lesson firsthand the other day, but they say that a tornado sounds like a freight train approaching that will tear up anything and everything in its path. But you see, a train has tracks that it rides along. A tornado, on the other hand, has no tracks. It's utter chaos depending on the wind patterns, how and where it decides to move once it touches the ground. Like most things in nature, tornado activity peaks in certain seasons. For us in the United States, tornado season typically begins in early spring for the states along the Gulf of Mexico. The month of May typically has the most tornadoes in terms of quantity, but the April pregame tornadoes are historically much more violent in terms of quality. Further north, tornadoes tend to be more common in the late summer. Now with these facts, can someone please tell me why the heck we were all subjected to several active tornadoes in Atlanta in mid-January, in the dead of winter. That's a sign from the universe to us, and you won't convince me otherwise. Thank you. Let's move on to see what butterflies have to teach us. Now, if you know me, you know that I am passionate about the butterfly. I currently have four butterflies tattooed on the back of my upper right arm that will eventually become a half or a full sleeve once I get the money for it. Haven't you ever noticed that whenever you're in love and you see that person that makes you the happiest in all the world, they call it feeling butterflies? Or haven't you heard the phrase, you give me butterflies? You get all warm and fuzzy inside and you just can't help but think of the existence of butterflies as the only way to explain your feelings. Go butterflies, be the butterfly. So our butterfly segment this week will be split up into two parts. First, the science of the butterfly, followed by the butterfly effect. According to an article published just six days ago by T.B. Pugh, a science journalist and co-founder of ZME Science, the humble caterpillar must go through a pretty gruesome process in order to become the beautiful butterfly that it was designed to be. For a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly, it actually digests itself using enzymes triggered by hormones. Imagine straight up eating yourself 
because one day the hormones in your brain just decided that the conditions and the timing was right for you to start munching on your arm. That's wild. After a caterpillar fully eats itself, sleeping cells similar to stem cells grow into the body parts of the future butterfly. So basically every caterpillar you see has dormant cells that are just asleep within it waiting for the spark of magic and perfect timing and caterpillar puberty to activate themselves and release the hormones that trigger the enzymatic digestion of its current self. And we thought they were just cute little hungry guys eating leaves from that children's book. Still going off of this article, let's take it back to the start and look at the entire process of metamorphosis for our friend here. A female butterfly first lays a small round egg on the leaf of a plant. Once the time is right, the egg hatches and becomes a baby caterpillar known as a larva. This little larva then ravenously binges on as many leaves as it can munch its way through to get bigger and bigger, sometimes even growing up to 100 times its original size. Once it gets so gigantic from binging on so much food that its skin literally cannot hold the mass of the leaves that it's been consuming anymore, a hormone is released that instructs the baby caterpillar to molt out of its current skin. It goes through this molting process about five times, each time getting bigger and bigger than the last time. Once it gets so full that fifth time and its poor little current body doesn't have any more skins unlocked, it knows that it's time to finally stop eating and hang itself from a twig or a leaf to spin a cocoon and molt into a shiny chrysalis by eating itself in the process mentioned previously. What's fascinating about this part is that it's actually the same exact hormone that told the little caterpillar to molt the first five times into a bigger caterpillar that triggers this final stage of the cocoon to become the butterfly. The only difference here is an altered presence of something called the juvenile hormone. Scientists have found that it's actually the lack of the juvenile hormone being present anymore that triggers the metamorphosis mechanism. What that means is that each time the little caterpillar became bigger before, it still had childlike hormones within itself and a childlike brain. Once its little brain finally got sick of being a caterpillar and rid itself of those childish hormones and ways of thinking, its body decided that it was time to become an adult and that it was done with those childish games of eating leaves all day and binging its life away. So it decided to kill its past self by doing the dirty work for itself. Scientifically, each and every cell in the dying caterpillar is programmed to self-destruct through the activation of enzymes called caspases that tear through all the cell's proteins. If it wasn't for the juvenile hormone that we talked about earlier, this process would have happened prematurely and killed the poor young caterpillar before it was ready. Instead, nature programmed the hormone to lower its levels until it was the ideal moment for the big metamorphosis. Once the enzymes have all done their job and our poor little caterpillar is just an unrecognizable soup of dead cells, the dormant sleeping cells are activated and feed on the goo of what the caterpillar once was to fuel the new rapid cell division required to create the wings, antenna, eyes, legs, and other features of the new butterfly. 
The whole process takes anywhere from a few weeks to several months, depending on the species. In nature, the little caterpillar has to be smart and choose the right place to hang itself and call home for that period of time because the changing butterfly will be subjected and vulnerable to predators and environmental factors that could impede its development. So moral of the story here, choose your home wisely and always be vigilant in watching for predators. You never know who's out to get you. Wow, talk about a wild ride. I also wanna to touch on the science of the butterfly's wings for a minute here. So with their newfound maturity, butterflies use their wings in every aspect of their lives, from navigating through the sky, to fighting, to dating, to mating, and hiding. The way the animal kingdom often communicates is through color, and the butterfly has mastered the use of color as one of its biggest assets. In an article from the British National History Museum, Katie Pavid teaches us that butterflies can actually see a little bit further into the red end of the visible light spectrum than we as humans can see. Butterflies can also see ultraviolet light. With this heightened level of color sensitivity, butterflies are able to better camouflage themselves to hide from predators, find pretty flowers, find a good-looking mate, and for males to use their personal color to fuel their pride and their ego to fight over a particularly gorgeously colored female butterfly. Owl butterflies have even evolved to have yellow ringed eye spots on their wings to fan out and mimic the eyes of an actual owl in the face of a predator in order for its adversary to think that it has come face to face with a much larger creature. This mechanism of the owl butterfly is actually heavily debated and not agreed upon by scientists. I think my favorite butterfly species are those of the tiger moth and milkweed caterpillars. So while they're young, these caterpillars deliberately consume and enjoy plants full of poisons, which actually makes them taste disgusting as mature butterflies to novice birds who haven't learned not to mess with them yet. So as butterflies, they have bright red or orange wings that gives a warning signal to the mature birds like, hey, don't eat me please. Then there's always the mimics that have wings that can mimic these poisonous butterfly species. But these caterpillars didn't actually feed on the poison themselves as a kid. They just fake it till they make it out alive by copying their poisonous friends. So now that we're all a bit more familiar with the science of butterflies, let's apply these principles to something known as the butterfly effect. I'm going to be using information from an article by Jamie L. Vernon, a molecular biologist, genetic engineer, the executive director and CEO of the Scientific Research Honor Society, and publisher of The American Scientist, to discuss the butterfly effect here. The popularization of the concept of the butterfly effect all began nearly 45 years ago during the 139th meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, when Edward Lorenz posed the question, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Remember what we said about tornadoes earlier, friends? With these 15 words and this single question posed by Lorenz, the butterfly effect was born and embraced by pop culture everywhere. 
Movies often use this phenomenon to emphasize the stunning significance of seemingly insignificant occurrences. For example, in the 1990 movie Havana, Robert Redford's character proclaims that, quote, a butterfly can flutter its wings over a flower in China and cause a hurricane in the Caribbean. Now, what a lot of people don't know about the butterfly effect due to this portrayal by pop culture is that with his initial question at the science meeting, Lorenz was actually trying to convey the opposite point. See what happens when things get taken out of context? Lorenz said that the purpose of his provocative question was actually to illustrate the idea that some complex dynamical systems exhibit unpredictable behaviors such that small variances in the initial conditions could have profound and widely divergent effects on the system's outcomes. And therefore, because the systems are so sensitive, the outcomes of these systems are innately unpredictable. So what we actually got out of the 139th annual science meeting, out of Lorenz's question, was the basis for the branch of mathematics known as chaos theory, which has been applied in countless situations and scenarios since this day. Lorenz's way of thinking about dynamic systems actually questioned the very laws that science was based upon. Going back to as early as 1687, when Sir Isaac Newton promoted the idea of a clockwork universe, suggesting that nature was a probabilistic mechanical system. By challenging the status quo, Lorenz discovered that nature's interdependent cause and effect relationships are simply too complex to resolve. To approximate the most likely outcomes for complex systems like weather patterns, Lorenz set up experiments using sets of slightly different starting conditions to conduct parallel meteorological simulations. This very method is the one that we still use today to generate the daily weather forecast that I know we all have readily available on our phones. Now this is just me thinking out loud here, but I think people all around the world right now are probably using Lorenz's spark of chaos theory to generate increasingly complex artificial intelligence systems, all tracing back to that single butterfly in Brazil that set off a tornado in Texas. Switching gears one last time here, I want to discuss the topics of enthalpy and entropy and how they relate to the chaos of the universe. Enthalpy and entropy are topics we use in biology, chemistry, and physics to explain how energy is exchanged within a system and how much disorder can be tolerated within that system at any given time. And to understand the topics of enthalpy and entropy, we must discuss them alongside something called Gibbs free energy as well as in the context of the three laws of thermodynamics. Gibbs free energy is one part of an equation we use to measure the amount of available energy that any given chemical reaction can provide or emit. We calculate Gibbs free energy for thermodynamic systems mathematically using the equation the change in Gibbs free energy is equal to the total change in enthalpy minus the product of the temperature in kelvins and the change in entropy. If you're interested in how all this works out visually, please click the resource document titled Enthalpy and Entropy in the podcast description for this episode. So from this equation, enthalpy is a term used to describe the total heat content of a particular system, while entropy describes the level of disorder or chaos of that thermodynamic system. The change in heat content, or enthalpy, will be dependent upon the changes in heat emission between the initial and the final state of our given reaction. 
enthalpy can be either positive or negative, which gives us the basis of exothermic and endothermic reactions that either release and emit heat or absorb heat and take it away from their surroundings. Entropy is probably my favorite biochemical physics science process of them all, to be honest. It fires me up. So like I said earlier, entropy is defined as the level of disorder in a thermodynamic system. For any spontaneous process, the entropy or disorder of the system should increase. Going back to our main equation now, if a reaction is spontaneous, the change in Gibbs free energy will be negative. If the reaction is non-spontaneous, the change will be positive. An important thing to note here is that spontaneous does not mean instantaneous. A classic example of a spontaneous reaction that takes ages to complete is the rusting of metal. Now let's just define the three laws of thermodynamics that these systems operate within before we move along. The first law states, energy is conserved. It can neither be created nor destroyed. The second law is this. In an isolated system, natural processes are spontaneous when they lead to an increase in disorder or entropy. And our third law, the entropy of a perfect crystal is zero when the temperature of the crystal is equal to absolute zero, which is zero degrees in kelvins. So what do I want us to take away from all of this? A spontaneous increase in chaos isn't necessarily a bad thing because energy is always conserved. What goes up must come down, if that makes sense. So for you as the listener, don't be afraid to make a spontaneous decision that may even appear disorderly or chaotic to your friends and family. The reaction will occur, the dust will settle, and the energy of your universe will be restored in due time. While I was reflecting on all these things we've discussed today, I was listening to our old smash hit Royals by Lord on my way home. An inspiration almost instantly struck me. Where is she now? Lord's full name is Ella Mariha Lani Yelich O'Connor. Yeah, I'd just go by Lord too if I were her. For anyone who isn't familiar with her, Lord is a 26-year-old singer and songwriter with both New Zealand and Croatian citizenship. Lord's first ever single titled Royals spent nine weeks at number one and won two Grammys. Her first album titled Pure Heroine, released in 2013, went triple platinum. Her follow-up album, Melodrama, took four years to create, and while it was less successful commercially, Melodrama served to realign Lord with the chaotic expectations people have of her and ended up getting her another Grammy nomination, this time for Album of the Year. Along her journey, Lord became a type of industry blueprint for the world-building, wallflower, misunderstood singer-songwriter type, giving inspiration to artists like Billie Eilish, Halsey, and Olivia Rodrigo. When asked about her typical Zen vibes, Lord has said, quote, I know enough to know that people in my position are symbols and archetypes, and where we meet people in the context of culture and current events is sort of outside our control, so I try not to fret too much. Her most recent album, Solar Power, that dropped in August 2021, describes what happens when a pop star outwits the system, swerves around its strange demands, and stops trying to make hits while deciding to whisper to her most devoted fans and followers how she did it. 
Throughout most her days of relatively recent, Lord lives peacefully as Ella among the waterfront greenery of New Zealand while figuring out the mysteries of the universe and of herself. One of her friends, Francesca, even said, quote, that the whole Lord thing doesn't and hasn't really come up. I've probably said the word Lord, maybe like, I can count it on one hand, end quote. So it sounds to me like Lord was real life Ella's alter ego. So Miley Stewart is to Hannah Montana as Ella Maria Yanni Yelich O'Connor is to Lord. Lord's relationship with technology is fascinating to me. As quoted from the New York Times, Lord said once, quote, I would see my screen time go to like 11 hours, and I knew I was just looking at the Daily Mail. I remember sitting up in bed and realizing I could get to the end of my life and have done this every day. And it's up to me to choose right now. So I just sort of chose. It ultimately took more than a mere decision for her though. Lord's phone is set to grayscale and now has no internet browser. She is locked out of her social media apps with others handling the passwords. One of her coder friends even made YouTube inaccessible on Lord's laptop. So what does she do with all her free time? She simply just transported herself back to a time when we didn't have technology as freely and abundantly as we do now. Lord bakes, she walks her dog, she cooks, she swims and gardens, while she waits to see if, quote, anything else worth writing about happens. Learning about her inspiration behind her 2021 album Solar Power has me absolutely shook at her genius. She said once, quote, I'm aware of the way people look at me. I can feel a huge amount of love and devotion that people have for me and for people in my position. And straight away, I wanted to be like, I'm not the one that's worthy of your devotion. I'm essentially like you. She continued, quote, my kids, my community, they're expecting spiritual transcendence from me, from these works. Quote, I need Lord to come back and tell me how to feel, tell me how to process this period in my life. I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can help you with that. But what I do know is that if we all look up here, it's gonna help you a lot, here referring to the sun, end quote. Coscarelli of the New York Times said, quote, playing the role of pop star as Messiah, she embraced the character of cult leader in song, proselytizing about the natural world. Well, I think we'll just let Ella live peacefully in the wilds of New Zealand or Croatia or wherever she is these days, while we as consumers take a closer look at each of her songs to find their deeper meanings, much akin to chaos theory. I think we all know what that sound means. Here he is, the moment I know you've all been patiently waiting for. It's my dad, the life coach. Hello listeners and welcome to this great day, January 30th, 2023. Man, I can't believe it's already 2023. Do you know there's a lot of great things that happened uh, January 30th? I'm going to share just a couple of them with you. Uh, one of them's not so great, but one's pretty good. So on this day, 
Phil Collins was born in 1951. Phil Collins is an English singer, songwriter, producer, and actor. Most of you have probably heard Phil Collins' music before, so happy birthday, Phil Collins. Woo, big birthday shout-out. Big birthday, shout-out to Phil. Also on this day, January 30th, also in 1951, oh, there was the death of a very prominent person. German engineer Ferdinand Porsche died on this day in 1951 the founder of some of the greatest automobiles in the world porsches ferdinand you did some great engineering and spawned the birth of a great brand rest in peace here's a moment of silence for ferdinand moment of silence for ferdinand now speaking of death some of you may recall a few weeks ago we gave a shout out to the best water on the planet liquid death <laughs> kennedy have you had a chance to try a liquid death yet i have had multiple liquid deaths and what are your thoughts i wasn't a fan of the normal just still water i just i didn't think it was very good i would prefer smart water over that but the sparkling varieties with the flavors those are where it's at i do enjoy those so liquid death if you're out there we love your sparkling flavored water please continue to develop new flavors and again if you're out there we are accepting royalties just reach out to keeping up with kennedy yes our question for my dad this week comes from one of our newer listeners who sent me her question via Instagram direct message. She writes, I was wondering if you could speak on having a friendship with someone who is in a toxic relationship. I lost a friend due to a toxic yo-yo relationship where I was the one to call every time they would break up. Eventually, after five years, I ended the friendship because it became a major stressor in my life. Even though I found peace in not being involved with the friendship, it brought a lot of guilt. So dad, how can we help our friend Abir out here? Well, hello Abir, and thank you for sending in that question. You know, that's a really great one. So what I understand is your friend, a long-term friend, was in a toxic yo-yo relationship with a, probably a significant other or something of that sort. And they kept continued calling you when they would break up or whatever and, and, and probably only calling you when those things would happen and after you know five years or so you got tired of it and you cut off the friendship because you were tired of being the rebound friend so hopefully i've got that right and we're going to go through some uh, thoughts i have on how to get over the breakup so abir i always like to start off with a little fact as part of my dad the life coach and the fact for this particular topic is that in 2019 there was a study of 10,000 people australian people the results of that study showed that grief can impair mental health and social functional issues for up to four years Carrying that grief can impact you mentally and socially for up to four years. That's 1,460 days, 35,040 hours, or 2,102,000 minutes. Who wants to put up with that grief for 2 million minutes? Not me. So first and foremost, let's determine if this is a real breakup or just a break. So one thing to note is that you can and should always be a friend's support system, but it can cross the line when you become that friend's therapist and punching bag. So the first thing you need to do to get over this guilt is dig down deep inside 
and determine if there's a path forward to forgive and forget and reconcile the relationship. So a beer, I'd slap a Benjamin down. For those of you that don't know, that's a $100 bill. So I'd slap a Benjamin down that you feel guilt because you broke the relationship off. But there's a really good chance your ex-friend is probably feeling guilt too, knowing that they weren't a very good friend to you, reaching out only when they were in this yo-yo pattern and using you as the rebound. So let's have a discussion with the ex-friend. Maybe you meet them for coffee or for lunch or maybe just a simple phone call and determine if you can reconcile. If you determine that you can make that call and you're willing to meet with your ex-friend, do this. Meet with them and speak openly and honestly about what went wrong in the friendship. And I would suggest that you don't hold back. Don't be aggressive, but speak openly, tell the truth. If your friend agrees to take things and move forward, move forward slowly and let the person know they're falling back into their old patterns. Now, Abir, if you've determined you can't reconcile, and this is after you've already met with your friend or talked with your ex-friend on the phone, if you've determined that you can't reconcile after that conversation, be guilt-free. Just be guilt-free. You've just released your guilt by discussing that with your friend. It's now their choice to move forward or not. So if you can't reconcile, put in the work, the really hard work that it takes and put that work into the friendships that you have and seek out new friendships. So at this point, Abir, I would say that it's time to get this guilt behind you. It's time to belly up to the bar, swallow your pride, and go talk to your ex-friends. See where it goes and release that guilt. I hope you take this advice and stay in touch with Keeping Up With Kennedy and let us know how it goes. Abir, that's why you called my dad the life coach. Well, everyone, I really hope the messages and ideas I was trying to convey in this episode came through with a logical flow building upon each previous topic. If you ever have any questions or want to dive deeper into discussion with me about anything you heard today, please don't hesitate to reach out to me via email or direct message. So with that, I think it's about time that I leave you all to digest all that we learned here this week. And with that, we'll see you next Monday. 